0: Uh, You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 23. That's where we're going to be this morning as we continue our study through the book of Acts. By way of recap, as you're turning there, if you weren't with us last week, we, we looked at the Lord of the letdown. We looked at how Paul, in a situation that seemed like failure and defeat, was sitting there in prison, and then the Lord came and stood by him that the Lord stood by Paul in that cell. He encouraged him in that moment. He told him, you have been faithful to do what I called you to do here, but then I'm going to send you to Rome. You're not done yet, Paul. It it ended with this promise that he was going to, to send Paul to continue to be a spokesman and ambassador for the gospel in Rome. That encouraging word for Paul to hold on to. But what we'll see today is even in the midst of God's plans, that each and every one of us, we have a part to play in that. Each and every one of you, you are a piece in God's puzzle. You are a part of his grand plan for what he is doing, what he's accomplishing within his promises. And if you're taking notes, as you can see there on the screen, today's message title is Our Part in God's Plan. That's what we're going to be diving into today. But as we talk about God's plan, as we start to use words like sovereignty and providence, I want to make sure we're all on the same page. And so I'm going to give you a couple definitions today. These are extremely simplified. Realize there are entire libraries that you could go read about God's sovereignty. There are, there are many who've dedicated their lives to the study of this, and, and you could debate it for years. We're just going to overly simplify it today so that we all have the same understanding as we look at our text. And so the first is God's sovereignty. It's the right and power to do all that he decides to do. God is sovereign. Do you agree with that this morning? Amen. He is sovereign. He has the right and the power to do anything and everything that he desires or decides to do. That word sovereignty, it speaks to the ultimate source of all power and authority. Maybe you might think of of a king's authority, and we might call it sovereign as he has this power and this authority over the people under him. But when we're speaking of God's sovereignty, we're speaking of his ultimate power and authority over all of creation, that everything he spoke into existence and it answers to him. In fact, Job in chapter 42 verse 2 said this, I know that you can do everything, and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. That speaks to the sovereignty of God, that whatever he wants to do, he can do it, and nothing that he has as a purpose will be withheld. We cannot stop or thwart the plans of God. In fact, we could look at a New Testament example, Colossians 1.16, that says, "...for by him all things were created." That are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. That definitive statement that it is all for him, that he is over all of it. And we also need to define within this how God works that out. And this is where we go from God's sovereignty and understanding that he has the power and the ability and the authority to do whatever he wants, to him acting that out in what we're, we're describing simply God's providence, which is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. That he's not only a God who has the authority and power to do so, but he is actively doing so throughout our lives. That he has planned the beginning to the end. That he is the author and the finisher of our faith. In fact, the word providence, it comes from the Latin word providentia. And it means essentially foresight or making provision beforehand. We'll even see this word used in Acts In the following weeks, in chapter 24, verse 2, we read this, seeing that through you we enjoy great peace and prosperity is being brought to this nation by your foresight. There's that word. But we see a negative use for this word as well in Romans chapter 13. In verse 14, we read, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. That same word, providentia, being used there. But when the concept is applied to God, it takes a much greater definition because God isn't simply looking ahead and attempting to make provision today for his goals that are out there somewhere. He is infallibly accomplishing what he sets out to do. That's why we can be confident of every promise we've been given in Scripture. It is not a question. There needs to be no doubt. If God has declared it, it will be. And so the promise that we looked at last week that Paul was given, this promise that you were faithful to declare my work in Jerusalem, and now I'm sending you to Rome, that's not optional. That's not if I can work it all out and get you there in time. It's not like when we set out plans or trips, and then something like COVID happens, and you have to cancel them. The Lord sees the beginning from the end, and when he declares that these things will be, you can be confident you can take that to the bank. That's going to happen. It's going to come through exactly as God had mentioned it. And it brings a question, doesn't it? Well, then, what's our part in all of this? If God's got a plan and he's just going to work it all out and it's going to happen no matter what we do, what is our part to play in this? Well, as I mentioned, we are the pieces of that puzzle. We are the parts of that, that moving picture of what God is doing, and every single person that has ever lived has played a part in that plan. The real question is, how will you be used by God as a part of his plan? See, this is where you get a bit of a choice in how you're used. There are men we could look at like Pharaoh in the Old Testament or, or King Saul, men who hardened their hearts and stiffened their necks against what God was doing, Men who were actively trying to come against God and his people. And they were used as an example of his power and authority over them. Of his protection of his chosen people even in the midst of them. And that his plan still comes about no matter how active they are in trying to come against it. No matter how much Pharaoh would harden his heart, God was still in control. Or there are men like Joseph and David we could look at men who were obedient to the will of God, men who were submissive to God's authority, men who desired to follow in God's ways and were humble to place themselves under his plan. These men were used in incredible ways for God's glory, to show his plan through them. We could even look at an Old Testament example like Jonah. Here's a man who was clearly told what the will of God was, and what does he do? He runs the exact opposite way, he hops on a boat in the different direction. And what does God do? God gets him off the boat, into the whale, onto the shore, into Nineveh, to do exactly what God said he would do. And let that be a reminder to any of us that would try and run from God's plans for our lives. You can't run from his plans for your life. You can't thwart God's plans. And Jonah is a great example of this. God's will is sure. His plans are permanent And what he declares to be, will be. In fact, looking at that life of Joseph, you can see so many moments, even with his brothers, with his parents growing up that seem so bad. So many situations that seem so wrong. And like, clearly this isn't part of God's plan. Clearly God didn't want this to happen. This was outside of his will. And yet what does Joseph himself declare? In Genesis 50 verse 20. You meant for evil against me, speaking to his brothers, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. See, he recognized you had evil intentions and you did something that was wrong, but God used it anyway. And God used you. You chose to be a wicked person that wasn't going to honor God, that was going to come against who God was using, God used that. And God took me exactly where he wanted to be. And he used me exactly how he wanted me to be used for good, even in the midst of their evil. And that's because God isn't limited by our actions. Even men with wrong intentions, with wickedness in their hearts, God can use for good because He's in total control. But He gives men the freedom to choose, but then uses their choice within His perfect plan. A verse we've all heard many times, Romans eight twenty eight. What does it declare? But that we know all things work together for good to those who are called, or those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Now it's important that you know it's according to His purpose. What Romans eight twenty eight is not saying is that everything just works out. That it, you don't even worry about it. You have no responsibility in this. Just let it happen how it happens, and it ends up good. No, but God works it all together for good. Joseph's brothers were still accountable for their actions, but God worked it together for good. What we're looking at today in our text is a number of different people, a number of different groups, some righteous, some wicked, some walking in obedience, some in disobedience, but all of them are playing a part in what God is doing, and he's going to work it out for his plan in Paul's life, and ultimately his plan for the life of the church and the spreading of the gospel, God is still in control of all of this. Before we continue on anymore, let's actually dive into our text now. We're going to pick up by way of review in verse 11 of chapter 23. And here's what we read. But the following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem so you must also bear witness at rome and when it was day some of the jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed paul now there was more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy they came to the chief priests and elders and said we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will not eat that we will eat nothing until we have killed paul Now you therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him. "'and said, "'Take this young man to the commander, "'for he has something to tell him.' "'So he took him and brought him to the commander "'and said, "'Paul the prisoner called me to him "'and asked me to bring this young man to you. "'He has something to say to you.' "'Then the commander took him by the hand, "'went aside and asked privately, "'What is it that you have to tell me?' "'And he said, "'The Jews have agreed to ask "'that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow.' As though they were going to inquire more fully about him, but do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you have revealed these things to me. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. He wrote a letter in the following manner, Claudius Lysias, to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of the law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told to me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and they returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea, and had dep- delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Let's go ahead and pray as we dig into God's word. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, Lord, as we see your, your plan unfolding in the life of Paul in Acts 23, God, we pray that it would bring spiritual truth for us today. Lord, that there would be application that you would speak to us and call us to live out. God, that there would be understanding that is brought in, in our, Lord, in our knowledge of who you are and, and how you work about your plans and in our responsibility within that. God, we come this morning to hear from you, from your word, so would you speak And would we have ears to hear? And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. And all God's people said, amen. So we see this plan unfolding. That God has clearly promised to Paul, you are going to Rome. And then we see what happens next. That at the same time that God has told him this plan, there's another plan that's going on. That there are these Jews that have conspired together. They've put together a plan, and they've bound it under an oath to say, we're going to kill Paul, and we're so set on killing Paul that we're not going to eat or drink until we've killed Paul. And it says more than 40 of them have banded together to do this. Now, the the funny question that everybody wants to ask, knowing the rest of the story, is what exactly happened to these men, right? (laughs) Clearly, they weren't successful in carrying out their oath. I personally don't believe that they were as extreme as they like to state. I don't think they starved to death because they didn't accomplish their mission. And part of that is because the rabbis allowed four types of vows to be broken vows of incitement, vows of exaggeration, vows made in error, and even vows that could not be fulfilled by reason of constraint. And as you begin to read the list, you realize these exclusions allow for almost any contingency upon whatever oath or vow you may have made. And all of a sudden, their oath loses a little bit of power, doesn't it? It's more like when, I promise I'll do this. You promise? Well, I'm, I'm really going to try to do this. It's, it's when you give your kids a maybe, right? It's, okay, that's a no, I get it. But they make this oath, this vow that we are not going to eat or drink until we kill Paul. These religious extremists, willing to break both the oral and written law to kill Paul. They're even willing to suffer the consequences, whatever those may be, for their actions to put to death Paul. They have become so furious with this man and everything that he represents, that they're willing to do whatever it takes to stop him. And at this point, they've determined it's got to be killing him. And they've seen multiple times when the riots begin to break up, that this commander comes and takes him away to safety. And so they know we need a plan to ambush him. We need a plan that they're not ready for. We need to surprise attack Paul and take him out. We can't have him continuing to spread this gospel that he is spreading. And so they come together with this extreme act to have him killed, to have an ambush set But even in this extreme act, with utmost dedication, God is still in control. But it challenges me. This isn't the main thing we're looking at today, but as you look at a group of more than 40 men that are so committed to this cause that they're willing to not eat or drink until they accomplish it, and there's more than 40 of them, I begin to ask myself, I begin to use the Scripture as a mirror, that shows us who we really are. Am I willing to suffer for my cause like that? Am I willing to die even for my cause like that? Because really the oath they've bound themselves under, if they are honest to keep it, is death awaiting them either way. Because either they don't accomplish it and they starve to death or they die of thirst, or they accomplish it and get caught for it and now they're killed for the penalty of killing this man. But they were willing to bind themselves under that that says, I'll die either way, but I am fully committed to this. And I begin to go, am I that committed to my cause for Christ? Would we celebrate the fact if we could get even 30 or 40 people to fast and pray over a cause together? Man, this group that don't even follow in the ways of Jesus are so committed are so devoted. We, as the people of God, with the Spirit of God living inside of us, knowing the truth, how much more committed should we be to our cause? Now, Paul demonstrates that well. He's, he's almost died time and time again, and he's not stopping anytime soon. There will be more death defying events in his future, but he continues to be committed to his cause. Are we that committed? Well, their next act is quite a sad scene. They don't just hide along the road, they actually come to the chief priests and elders and want to get these religious leaders in on the plan. Even the religious leaders don't condemn this conspiracy. It should have stopped right there as they come to them. They should have said, No, this goes against the law. We are not killing this man in cold blood. No. He's going to have his fair trial. We're going to allow him to defend himself. We're not killing him. He's done nothing worthy of death. But now we find these religious leaders guilty by association and omission, not doing what they knew to be right according to the law. And it's even sickening to see the exceptions that these legalists are willing to make when it comes to what's within their own best interest and getting this guy, Paul, out of the way. You shall not murder one of the clearest and greatest commands that they knew, and yet they're willing to overlook it. In fact, even the pagan Roman soldiers weren't willing to just kill Paul. We're fighting to allow him to receive a fair trial and are going to even here help him escape to get away from this plot and receive a fair trial But the religious leaders in their day, those that should have been the men of integrity, honesty, righteousness, justice, are the ones being found conspiring together to kill him. Those whitewashed tombs. The whitewashed wall, as Paul called them, very accurately we see here. They may look religious on the outside. They may look pure and clean, but they're dead inside. And they're acting in contrary to God's promises and God's plan. But as we see, that doesn't stop what God is going to do. See, God is not surprised by this plan. He's not caught off guard by their actions. He's at work in the midst of their plot and has his own spy on the inside. We read about Paul's sister's son, Paul's nephew, this noble nephew You know, it's interesting, Paul never mentions anything about his family, except for what we saw last week, when he mentions that I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, and here where Luke gives us the details to say this is actually Paul's nephew. But how did he hear about the plot? Well, there's different ideas about maybe how he heard of it. Many think possibly he was studying under the Pharisees just as his uncle Paul did, just as Paul's father did. And in sitting under the Pharisees, he overhears this plot taking place. But what I love is what he does when he hears of the ambush. He acts. He does something about it. He takes responsibility in that moment for his actions and what he does with that knowledge. See, this young man, he couldn't stop their plan by going up to them and confronting it. He couldn't overtake 40 men that are so extreme and committed they're not eating or drinking until they accomplish it. But he could let Paul know. He could spoil the plot. He could get the right people informed who could take action. And we see the bravery of this young man. No doubt putting his own life on the line, because if he's found out, they'll just as quickly take him out of the picture so that they can accomplish their plan, But he's a man of integrity, wisdom, to do what he could to make a difference in this situation. We also, though, clearly see the Lord's hand in all of this. That even when there's what they think is a secret plot going on, that God's got people on the inside that are hearing it and going to inform those it's against without them even knowing let that be a, a, a word to remind us when we think we know better than God. He knows even the secret plots going on and he's got people on the inside that he's still using to work about his plan. There's no doubt in this that God is in control. And this boy, this young boy, the nephew of Paul, he will not be guilty for the sin of omission like these religious leaders. He knows what is the right thing to do in this moment and he's going to act on it he's going to go and tell Paul. He's going to make sure the right people find out that this plot comes to nothing. That true justice is served. And so he comes and he tells Paul. And this is an interesting moment here because we've got Paul in prison with a promise from God that you are going to go and testify for me in Rome. And then his nephew comes to him and says, well, Paul, I've got some bad news. I just overheard a plot. There's over 40 guys that are planning to ambush you and kill you. And Paul could have said in this moment, who cares? God told me he has a plan for me. I'm just going to kick back. They they can't stop what God's going to do. But here's what I love. Paul recognizes that he has a responsibility as well in this. He's been given a promise from God, so now he needs to walk it out by faith. And if he truly believes God's sending him to Rome... Then in this moment, he needs to do something with the information God just brought. This isn't a moment for Paul to kick back and say, I don't need to do anything. No, God's clearly at work here. He's confirming that promise by providing your nephew who overheard the story, who's now giving you the information, what are you going to do with it? And so Paul calls this centurion, and you're like, how is he doing this within prison? He's a Roman citizen. He has rights as a Roman citizen still. And so he can call this centurion and say, you need to take this boy to the commander because he's got something he needs to hear. He walks by faith, trusting God has provided this nephew to spoil their plan, to take him safely to Rome, as God had said he would do. And in both the nephew and Paul, we see the same response. Remember what James 1.22 says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Well, Paul's been given a word from the Lord. And now he's being a doer of that word. He's walking out that promise, believing that it is true. That God's work isn't finished for me yet. And he still has work for me to do. And he's provided you to spoil their plan so I can continue his work. So I'm going to be a doer. I'm going to send you to the commander. I'm going to do my part in the midst of God's promise. And this is true for our lives as well. I've heard many of people tell me, I would have done that, but God didn't provide. And I love to follow up with, well, what did you do? Maybe God promised and said, you need to do this. And you're like, okay, well, if, if God's calling me there, he's going to have to provide the money because I don't have it. Well, that doesn't mean you binge watch Netflix at home and hang out with your friends and just kick back and say, the money never showed up. It didn't just fall in my pocket. I didn't win the lottery. I didn't turn around the corner and find all the money I needed. Nobody popped up and said, here's the money for you from the Lord. So I guess he didn't provide. Realize you have a responsibility in this as well. Now, when you've worked hard and you've done everything you can to provide every penny you can, and then the door still closes and you don't have the money, you can say, well, God didn't provide. I did my part. I walked out by faith. I believed he would provide the rest. And if he doesn't, it's because he didn't want me to do that. But if he does, now I know confidently God's sending me there. Here, Paul is putting into action what he believes. In evangelism, we don't say, well, God's just going to have to get people saved. He'll do it somehow. He'll use someone somehow. You've been called to go and do your part and make disciples and preach the gospel and share the good news we've got a responsibility as well. And at the end of our life, we can't say, well, God, you didn't do it. You didn't provide that, you didn't do that. What did you do with what you were given? How did you act upon what God had told you to do? Because you are responsible for your actions. And Paul here is faithful, even from prison, to do what he can to accomplish the plans of God. So the young boy is brought to the commander Claudius Lysias is his name. We see that in the letter he writes to Felix. And he takes the young boy by the hand, and this is why we believe this was probably a a fairly young boy. The fact that he's taking him by the hand, leading him to the side to hear what he has to say. And it may seem surprising, why is this commander that has so much on his plate giving time to some young little kid who says, hey, I've got news for you? Well, that's because a centurion comes saying, hey, Paul, who's in prison, said you need to hear what this boy has to say. And this commander has continually been pulling Paul out of these riots, trying to figure out what exactly is going on. And all of a sudden he hears, Paul's nephew's got some juicy information for you on Paul. And he's thinking, finally, I'm going to get some answers. I'm going to find out something. Yeah, whatever it is, I'm willing to hear it. And so he takes this young boy to the side and this young boy doesn't hold back to to tell him the whole plot, but also to even give the commander instruction. I love that. The boldness of this young man. He just doesn't hold back. He looks at me and says, hey, here's the plan, so you need to not do that. Don't let Paul go there, okay? You need to keep him back. You need to do something else, but don't let him go. And so what does the commander do. He's a man of justice. He's a man of the law. He's a man of integrity. And he's unwilling to let these extremists take matters into their own hands. These men who think they're above the law in this moment, the commander won't see it. So he puts together a counterplot. He puts together a plan. He tells these two centurions to go get 200 men, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen. They've got 470 soldiers that are going to accompany Paul. He's making sure that if there is a fight, they're not outmanned or outgunned. But he also tells them that you're going to go by night. He tells this young man, you need to stay quiet about this, because he knows that this group is this extreme. If they find out we know about their plot, they're only going to put together another one. So don't tell them anything. You go away, I've got a plan. And he tells these soldiers that they are going to go to Caesarea, which was a fairly new city at this time, only 70 to 80 years old. The city was 60 to 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and it had become the hub, so to speak, the headquarters for the Roman governors to whom Paul would be sent for trial. And he plans to send Paul there to be tried by Antonius Felix, the acting Judean governor or procurator in this time. But we'll talk more about him in a moment. They're told to depart at the third hour, that's 9 p.m., with 470 of these trained soldiers, and, and Paul mounted up with them to go in the night and leave. And then he prepares this letter of explanation that he's going to send with Paul that will be given to Felix to explain the situation, to give him context for why he's sending him, what he knows about Paul, his own kind of summary of of what he believes, whether Paul is innocent or guilty. And he sends this letter to Antonius Felix. Felix at this point has governed Judea for five years Two years prior to that, he had served in Samaria, and he's still got two more years to go at this point. He'd begun his life as a slave, but his brother, Pallas, had gained favor with Nero. And so, through his brother's influence and favor with Nero, he was actually not only given his freedom, but also raised up to this position to be a governor. He was the first slave in history to ever become the governor of a Roman province. But as we hear these incredible feats, don't let that fool you into thinking this was some great man. This governor, this procurator that Paul is going to go stand trial under, listen to how Tacitus, the Roman historian, spoke of him. He said he exercised the prerogatives or privileges of a king with the spirit of a slave. That although he had all the privileges and rights of a king that he enjoyed, that he indulged in, he was known as a man who continued to give in to his lust and pleasure in any way he could. He said he had the spirit of a slave. He had married three different princesses, one after another, continually an immoral man in all respects of his life, not well liked by the people. In fact, he even hired thugs at times to murder some of his closest supporters when they were contrary to him. And it's to this man that Paul is being delivered. It's this man that he now has to hold trial by. And you think, man, out of the fire and into the frying pan, or out of the frying pan into the fire, who knows, but it's not good. Either way, Paul is going from bad to worse, it seems. Now he's leaving the the protection of this commander. Now he's going to a whole new location where he's going to have to share his story all over again. But even in the midst of this, even with a wicked man in power, God is very much in control. And God is going to use it to continue to spread the gospel. And so the soldiers, they take Paul They bring him by night, and they go to Antipatris. And then the next day, it says, they left the horsemen to go on with him. And you're thinking, well, this is odd. Why are only the horsemen continuing on with him from here? Well, that's because Antipatris was the midway point, so to speak. Sixty miles from Jerusalem to Caesarea, and Antipatris was 25 miles from Caesarea. Up to Antipatris was the dangerous country. This is where it was inhabited by Jews, where there remained um, more hill land and easy places where they could hide and they could overtake them. But the rest of the journey from here on out is going to be open flat land, where an enemy would be exposed and clearly seen, and you're on horse. You can easily escape them, divert from them, And so the majority of the group is to head back to Jerusalem while the horsemen continue to take Paul on the rest of the way. They bring him to Felix. And he's given this this letter, this explanation from Claudius Lysias of, of all that's taken place under his authority with Paul. Now he's a man He's a man that wants to look good before the procurator. And so you notice that he kind of leaves out some details in there. He doesn't mention the fact that he was about to scourge Paul and then found out he was a Roman citizen. He just goes ahead and says, I found out he was a Roman citizen. I saved this man, and now I'm sending him to you because they're trying to kill him. He he paints himself in a very nice light, which we all like to do, don't we? We all see ourselves as the hero in the story, not the villain. He paints himself in a nice picture and he sends this letter, but he does make a note to declare that everything that they found and charged against Paul according to their law, he didn't see him guilty of death or of chains. He didn't think he deserved any of it. And then he sends this letter to Felix. Felix reads over the letter, asks Paul what province he is from. This was important to make sure he even had jurisdiction over wherever Paul's coming from to have authority over holding his case. And as he hears where he's from, although technically not in his province, he can summarize, this isn't a matter that needs to go back there. This is something we can handle here. So he will hear his case, but first he wants to hear from the accusers as well. And so he sends Paul to Herod's praetorium, a lavish palace built by Herod. And it's here that Paul will stay for the next three years on house arrest. Through multiple trials, ups and downs, this is where Paul will spend the next three years. And you have to wonder for those three years if Paul didn't struggle at times, feeling confused. God, you've given me a promise and then you miraculously brought me out from the midst of this plot against my life. I saw your hand in all of that, but now I'm stuck here on house arrest for three years. No progress being made. I'm thinking you're doing something here, but I don't know how this is a part of your plan. And I wonder how many of us can relate. With things you believe God has put on your heart, called you to do, places he's called you to go, promises he's given you about someone who's walked away or... An opportunity you're going to get one day in a situation. And yet, time and time again, we feel like the opportunities have passed by, Lord. It's been years. I, I still haven't seen that come about. But what I love is that Paul takes responsibility for where he's at and what he can do. He has this promise of God, and he's holding on to it. But that doesn't mean he waits to be used by God until he gets to Rome. Paul says, okay, you're going to take me there, but everywhere in between, I'm going to continue to be used by you as well. So on house arrest, he's going to continue to speak to everybody. Every guard that is there that watches him, every person that will come and have interaction with Paul is going to get the gospel. I love in some of his letters how he will write that the whole guard says hello to you. That that this person here and this person here and that there's, there's groups rising up wherever he goes because he's continuing to be faithful where he's at. He's not saying, God, use me when I get to where you called me to go. God, use me here today. God, use me now, here. Don't postpone being used by God. Don't put off the work of God. Don't say, when I get this degree, when I get this job, when I get this far in my career or in my my maturity and my understanding of Scripture, then, then I'll go evangelize. Then I'll make disciples then all today, be faithful today with what God has before you, with where God has you, with who he brings in your path. We see Paul being faithful to do that. Now, we don't get the privilege of seeing the full picture. We get to look at Paul's life, and we get to see beginning to end. We get to see it all lay out and everything God's doing. But in our own life, we sit in those difficult moments where we don't know what God's doing and why he's allowed it to work out this way. And maybe some of you feel like you're in a stage of life like Joseph when he was in prison, not yet seeing how the Lord fully worked everything out for good, but feeling like you've been betrayed and you've been forgotten about and you've been abandoned. But be like Joseph in being faithful where you are at, a man who is still being used by the Lord even in his cell, A man who was faithful with whatever responsibility he was given. Trusting that God has a plan, and even if I don't see it now, one day, one day we will stand before the Lord. And one day he's going to lay out that picture before you, and you are just going to fall on your knees before him. And you're going to declare that he is holy, holy, holy. And you're going to have a healthy fear of God as you recognize I didn't have a clue what you were doing. And I am such a small piece in this grand puzzle. And your work was perfect. And your plans were so much better than my own. And Lord, forgive me for ever thinking I knew better. That I had a better way. That I had a better timing. That I had a better method. Let's be a people today that live in light of that truth. That God is doing incredible things today. And each and every one of us here, we are a piece of that puzzle. Let's be a people that seek the Lord for wisdom and discernment in what He is doing so we can play our part in that. Because I want to be found working for the Lord, not against Him. I want to be on the side of the Lord. I want Him to use me for His glory, and I want that for you as well. And as I invite the worship team to come back up, I don't want to close without bringing an opportunity before us. Because you and I have a responsibility for our actions according to his plans. Will you be found faithful, walking in obedience to his will? Being a part of what he's accomplishing? Or will you be found in disobedience? As an example of God's justice, God's power and authority even over your disobedience. And God's use of even your your evil works to accomplish his good. You have a choice. And my prayer for you, my prayer for myself this week, has been that we would make the right choice. That we would realize who's ultimately in control. That we wouldn't try to fight against that, but we would get behind it. And we would submit under it. And we would say, Lord, your will be done. As Jesus declared, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. See, that's the prayer of a man or a woman who's in submission to God. Who is willing to say, God, I have plans for my life. You can change all those today. I want to serve you. I want to follow you. You have better plans. You have better ways. And I want to give an opportunity in this this time right now. I want to give a moment. If there's anybody who is realizing maybe for the first time, or maybe you've been fighting against it for a long time, that you've been fighting against the plans of God, that you haven't been on the right side of his story, that like Paul was before the road to Damascus, even if you had good intentions, you're working against God, and there is no middle ground. You're either for him or you're against him. You're either a child of God and so a friend of God and a co-heir with Christ or you're at enmity with God. And you're still dead in your sin and your trespasses. And you're not going to stop God's plan. And he's going to use you whether you like it or not. But you have an opportunity to surrender. Surrender submit, to receive forgiveness for your sins, to be given a new heart and a new spirit, to be given a purpose and an identity in Christ as a part of his body, as a part of the church, as a part of the family of God. And I want to ask in this moment, if there's anybody, just by raising your hand, that wants to make that decision this morning to say, I need to give my life to Jesus. I haven't been walking in his ways. I haven't been fighting for him, I've been fighting against him. And today I wanna surrender. Is there anybody here this morning? Well then I trust this morning There were amongst the family of God, all believers who have made that decision at some point to say, I want to follow Jesus. I want to be a part of his plan. I want him to use me for his glory. And my challenge to you this morning is to continue daily in that attitude wherever God has you, maybe you're seeing the promises come to fruition or maybe there's been a promise you've been holding on to for years and you don't see how it could possibly be accomplished now. Continue to be faithful where God has you. He has plans for you today and they're good and they're for his glory and they're working about something so much greater than any one of us could ever accomplish on our own. We're going to close in prayer. We're going to close out with one final song. And we're going to have people available on both sides of the room to pray with you. And maybe you truly are a believer and you love the Lord, but you know you've been fighting against something that he's telling you to do. Or you've been doubting his ability to fulfill his promises. Or you're struggling with something inside. Or you just want prayer to be faithful today. We'd love to pray with you. Please don't hesitate today. Let's pray. God, as we submit unto your word, Lord, as the ultimate truth, the absolute truth, God, we say yes and amen to your plans, to your will. Lord, we acknowledge you are sovereign. You have the power and authority over all. And by your providence, we know that you are working it out, God. And we want to be used way that honors you. God, would you show us what you have for us today? Give us your spirit, Lord, anew and afresh. God, give us discernment to know when something might be good, but it's not what you have called us to do. And Lord, no matter where we find ourselves today, in the midst of the struggles, Lord, in the midst of what feels like a cell or, Lord, seeing your promises unfold before us, God, would we be found faithful? Would we continue to do the work of an evangelist and a disciple for your glory? And it's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we close in worship?